You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series focused on current issues affecting the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area and the unique raptor populations that live there. The show is produced as a part of Radio Boise's Our Earth series and is presented by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation and from a generous Patagonia media grant. I'm Matt Podolsky. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to encourage anyone who's listening to help Radio Boise celebrate 10 years of broadcasting by making a donation to the station. Over the past decade, this radio station has become an integral part of this city, and it's easy to forget that it's largely run by a dedicated group of volunteers. By making a donation, you are showing your appreciation for the amazing people that keep this station running. Text KRBX Give to 44321, call 208 258 2072, or donate at radioboise.org. Climate crisis is upon us, and as we explore current issues facing the ecosystems of southwest Idaho in this series, our rapidly changing climate is the top concern. Increasing temperatures and shifts in precipitation patterns have changed how raptors interact with this landscape, and have also dramatically increased the risk of wildfire. When the native shrubland habitat burns under these conditions, our new climate reality, paired with the ubiquitous presence of invasive cheatgrass, makes it nearly impossible to restore that ecosystem to its pre-wildfire condition. Today's guest is an expert on climate adaptation and was the lead author of a recent paper outlining a new approach towards land management that takes into account the dramatic climatic changes that are an inevitable part of our future. You'll hear our guest, Patty Glick, refer to this new land management framework by its acronym, RAD, which stands for Resist, Accept, Direct. Yeah, so I'm Patty Glick. My title is uh, Senior Scientist for Climate Adaptation at the National Wildlife Federation. I work for our, our national team, although I'm uh, currently based in Bend, Oregon. You've been uh, sort of playing this role uh, focused on climate adaptation for, for quite a while, right? I mean, I, I wonder, like, how did that come about? Like, where did the, your interest in this topic of climate change adaptation come from? Well, it's, it's interesting that I've actually been working on climate change for since the early 1990s, maybe it just me. Um, you know, at the time, it was really starting to gain a lot of uh, traction and attention. Um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change had been established in Rio, I think it was 1992. Of course, Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, came out that year, and that, that inspired me as well. And it, I've always been very interested in, in conservation and nature, but even back then, I think what, what really struck me about climate change and why I wanted to work on the issue in general was just how fundamentally humans are changing the environment. I mean, it's just, it was unbelievable even to me then, um, you know, that we could, it could be exacting such a, a tremendous um, impact on our planet. And, you know, I actually started more on the mitigation side of things, which is, you know, trying to reduce um, 
climate change by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, it, at the time, um, you know, I think it just has been, even back then, a challenge of really trying to connect the dots for people on what it means and why people should care. And it's one of the reasons I started uh, working for the National Wildlife Federation, and this is now 20 plus years ago, um, mainly because they really did um, want to bring the issue to the public and, and create a grassroots outreach campaign. Um, but at the same time we were trying to connect the dots for people, we were talking about the impacts that climate change is already having. And it occurred to me even then, why, you know, should we also be talking about how do we deal with those impacts? Um, and, you know, at the time, I think a lot of people working on climate change were afraid to talk about adaptation, which is dealing with the impacts, because there was a fear that um, we would look like we're giving up and that we're throwing up our hands on the mitigation side of things. But, you know, we at the National Wildlife Federation recognize that, hey, we need to do both. We need to minimize climate change the best we can, but we are dealing with impacts, increasingly dealing with impacts. So, so climate adaptation really was a, a logical uh, transition for us as an, an organization and, and for our mission um, to, to be able to ensure that wildlife can survive in a rapidly changing world. I wonder if there was like a moment or, or something that happened that sort of made you realize like, oh, we need to focus on adaptation in addition to mitigation, you know? For me, a lot, I spent a lot of time at the beach and, um, you know, coastal issues, sea level rise, uh, increasing storms, it's, it's right in front of us. Um, you know, I think sea level rise in particular for a lot of coastal communities has been one of the early areas in which communities are thinking about adaptation. Again, because I think we're starting to see the, the, the effects and it's hitting people, um, you know, where they live and, and where they recreate. And, and so uh, a lot of my early work um, within the National Wildlife Federation was looking at the potential effects of sea level rise on coastal habitats and species, but also to coastal communities. And, and it's, the, the issue of adaptation then has, has grown you know, in other ways, I think, um, especially for, if you look at what a lot of the national parks are, are seeing, coastal parks, of course, but here in the West, uh, you know, the wildfire seasons alone, I think, have been a real wake-up call for, um, you know, for not just, you know, not just parks, but communities out here that are facing real, real risk. We talk about climate change adaptation, right? And I think, like, big picture, I think a lot of people understand what that means, right? It's adapting to the changes that are already happening or the changes that are inevitable um, as a result of climate change. But like, I, I think a lot of people have a hard time like wrapping their minds around like, well, what does that mean? You know, like what are some, like maybe you can talk about like some of the like early examples that you that you worked on that you would put into that category. Well, it's, it's interesting when we, when we think about uh, climate adaptation, it's you know, some people um, say people who are, uh, you know, used to the term adaptation from kind of a, an evolutionary perspective. Yes, there's some of that to it. There's some natural uh, adaptation that certain species might be able to take, say, moving to um, areas that have a, you know, that, that are more climat climatically suitable. 
Um, but we also talk about adaptation from a management perspective, and that's the human end of things. You know, what can we do to help wildlife adapt? What, whether that is, um, you know, ensuring that there are not barriers to dispersal if they can disperse, or actually maybe even physically moving, a, you know, certain plants or species to another area that they might um, persist in in the future. So, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to adaptation. Um, you know, it's, it's going to depend very much on um, both the ability of, of um, again, species or, 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 or plants to, to move on their own, our ability to move them, or uh, their ability to persist through their own evolution. So if, it, you know, again, there's no one size fits all approach to adaptation. Um, and I think when you look at um, just the diversity of, of, from a fish and wildlife perspective, the diversity of habitats that we have, um, there's a whole range of um, vulnerability that, that needs to be understood before we can really identify the right steps to take. The genesis of this, this report that, that the National Wildlife Federation helped them put together um, really began uh, as part of a, a, a broader coalition of um, nat uh, natural resource agencies from the Park Service and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA, and others um, about um, six or seven years ago recognizing the need to develop guidance for managing um, uh, natural resources uh, under changing climate conditions. And building on that work, the Park Service wanted us to customize that guidance for their needs. And so we worked very closely with them um, for the last five years to develop the, what's called planning for a changing climate. And you know, they, it, it very much reflects their vision. Um, the, part, the agency is, recognizes that there are a lot of uncertainties with climate change. There's a great potential for surprises and unforeseen events. And so they have really adopted an approach that is um, focused on looking at multiple scenarios for future conditions. And so they're planning for everything from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario and everything in between and it's it's a it's a unique approach for for, for them um uh but you know I, th I think it's one that you know recognizes the reality that uh you know more than a century of you know trying to maintain persistence of, of you know historical conditions is really no longer tenable and so the agency is having to um, ask some pretty difficult questions and, and you know, try to uh, provide for the many things that people love about our national parks, but in, an, in, in a way that is um, recognizes the reality of, of a changing climate and perhaps the need to make some hard choices. So like maybe we can sort of get into the specifics a little bit, like, like what is the sort of new management framework like how it like you know what are the recommendations contained within this report and how different are they from what like park service land managers have been doing for the last century 
Well, so one of the interesting things that the that the Park Service has helped develop is a framework for thinking about um, managing for change and not just persistence. Um, you know, so much of our conservation um, history has been about persistence of historical or even maintaining current conditions, restoring to some uh, previously desired state. Um, the reality is that um, with conditions changing so much, the ability to maintain persistence, uh, you know, say of even um, namesake park features like glaciers and Glacier National Park, it's, it's that's unfortunately not something that's going to be practical. Um, so the the agency has um, helped develop a framework called what they call um, ranging from resisting to perhaps accepting change or even directing change. It's, a, it's kind of a nice acronym called RAD, the RAD framework. You'll maybe have heard about in, in some of the, the newspaper articles that have come out on this issue. Um, and essentially it just means, you know, for, for changes that are underway, yeah, let's try and resist them when we can to the best, you know, degree we say maybe um, irrigate um, sequoia trees in Sequoia National Park where they're thinking about doing that. Some cases we may have to accept change. For example, the loss of glaciers. Um, not a whole lot. You know, I know in in some places like in the Alps, they're actually laying tarps on glaciers to prevent them from from melting. And there's certainly some innovative stuff being done. But for the most part, some changes we are going to have to accept and interpret. But then there are also opportunities to um, perhaps direct change uh, in a way that may at least um, on a larger scale, help maintain persistence of a species, even if it's in a different place than it used to be in the past. So again, I mentioned Glacier National Park. You know, they, there may be very little they can do to prevent the loss of glaciers, but they are doing, they've actually, for their um, endangered uh, cutthroat trout, they're actually moving some of those um, fish to higher elevation lakes. And again, it's, it's a change from historical conditions, but that's being done to maintain persistence of the species on a whole. And there's hope that some of those lakes will not warm as, as quickly as some of the, the current habitat for those species. Gotcha. And that's an awesome example, right? And it's, it's I, I think it's really cool to see land managers, uh, you know, sort of breaking from, from that mold. If you're trying to, pres- if you're trying to restore any ecosystem to some historic point in the past, like the historic point that you choose is arbitrary, no matter what, at least in my opinion, you know, it's like, like, unless you're trying to say that you want to restore it to like the way it was before humans were there, but then it's like, we're going back 15, 20,000 years at that point, if that's the case. And that's not what most land managers are talking about. So like, I, I love that it's it like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe this is like a silver lining to this whole issue is that like, I think that there were issues with that approach, even separate from climate change. And I don't know, like, I wonder if that's a, like, was a part of the thought process at all as this was being crafted. I think for sure. Um, you know, for, for example, well, the parks, for the park service, for sure, we've also been working um, on uh, similar issues with uh, national forest restoration efforts. And, and from that perspective, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The idea of restoration, um, ecological restoration had, had for the better part of the last century been founded on, um, 
you know, this idea of, of uh, you know, historical range of variability, which, again, you know, some some people who have worked in, in um, restoration try and pick this baseline as being prior to European settlement, which is also quite arbitrary. You know, obviously, humans have been on the landscape here in North America for, well, well, you know, thousands of years. So there's um, that that prior, you know, to European settlement is very arbitrary anyway. But from a climate change perspective, you know, we're looking, we're looking at change, even if you're looking at historical range of variability over the past 800,000 years, um, where we've seen carbon dioxide emissions go up and up and down, up and down, it's never really been more lower than about 150 parts per million to 300 parts per million. Now we're at like 450, you know, we're over 400 parts per million in, you know, from a geologic time scale alone, that's a blink of an eye. So this idea of, of you know, maintaining some historical range is, is I mean, it, it, we've already thrown that, that baby out, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, so it's a challenge for, for um, just the practice of restoration. Um, it's, it's almost like you have to restore forward. Um, and what does that look like? What is a desired future condition look like? Um, can we work our way towards something rather than, you know, just accepting that changes are underway? Um, and that's, you know, it's going to require innovation uh, from a conservation perspective. I, I think that the, the tarps on glaciers is one, you know, unique piece of innovation. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I think we're going to need increasingly to be creative in, in how we, um, we conserve, uh, you know, I, I think the idea of protection even is, um, you know, a little bit upended in some ways. It's, it's definitely a challenge, I think, in particular for some of these namesake parks. I mean, we, we joke a little bit about, uh, you know, having to rename Joshua Tree the park formerly known as Joshua Tree, right? It's, it's as much of a cultural challenge as it is, you know, a physical challenge. Uh, and that's probably the hardest thing, I think, uh, for agencies like the, the Park Service. Joshua Tree National Park, the namesake of the park almost certainly won't be there for much longer. And so it's like one of the things that I think about a lot in the context of land management is like, does the boundary of the park change? People know these parks because of their namesake species. And, and that's a hard thing to um, just to think about having to let go. Um, so yeah, on the broader landscape scale, I think that there are places where Joshua trees will continue to um, be able to survive and, and thrive. Um, it's a values-based question uh, as much as it is, a, you know, a, a science-based question. Um, I, I think as well, you know, we're starting to see um, a lot of collaboration between national parks and neighboring lands in part because of this need to, to think more holistically about um, uh, our, our ecological systems as we're experiencing rapid change. Um, we're seeing, you know, from one part to another, there's another really good example, um, you know, places like the Indiana Dunes 
they have lost um, the cornered blue butterfly, which is a really iconic um, endangered butterfly species in the, the Great Lakes area. But um, the Apostle Lakes area doesn't currently have the cornered blue butterfly, but they're actually thinking that their park might be able to support the, the butterfly in, under changing climatic conditions. They, they think that they can plant lupin, which is an important food source for the um, or nectar source for the butterfly. And, and um, so they're actually thinking about maybe introducing the species up there. So that's a new goal for that park. It's kind of park to park collaboration, but thinking about climate change has opened that kind of decision making up. Totally. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a cool example. I'm, I'm hoping that we're, uh, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we're going to get like a, a climate conservation core that could like step in and start implementing this and doing some of the work and some of the research and some of the on the ground kind of work required with like directing that change. Yeah, I mean, and there, there is a lot of discussion of just that kind of thing through, um, in, you know, the infrastructure pieces and, you know, it's all, luckily, I think that there's a lot of um, talk of, of the synergies between a lot of the decisions that, that need to be make, um, need to be made on, on the infrastructure side of things, the energy side of things, the, the, you know, natural land management side of things. And, you know, it kind of, it's similar to that idea of um, having adaptation and mitigation and then, the carbon sequestration bridging the two. Um, you know, I think that a lot of that organic thinking is happening and, uh, you know, hopefully, again, it's not going to be another 30 years before we see change that I thought we would have seen a lot sooner than we ended up seeing. So I've been working on this issue for three decades. I wish we were much further along. And three decades ago, I thought we would be a lot further along on, on the emission side of things than we are. Um, unfortunately, it has taken um, experiencing, you know, extreme hurricane seasons and extreme wildfire seasons for people to kind of be waking up to the issue. But um, I think the wildfire seasons that we've been experiencing out here definitely, definitely been a wake-up call. I think there just needs to um, also be this recognition that, um, you know, restoration of forests may not look like restoring forests to what they were 200 years ago or 400 years ago. Um, it may be, you know, perhaps looking at replanting with, with species that are going to be better adapted to conditions that we're going to start seeing in the future. And so, yeah, those conversations are already happening in a lot of places. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, appreciate your interest in this, and you know. And again, I I'd love to to hear some of your follow up work. Um, you know, with, with some of the folks in your region, you know, and how they're how they're thinking about this. Because for me, um, it's one thing to think about it from this, you know, big picture, lofty principle based perspective. It's another to, to actually see this stuff um, being applied in in real life. And I think that's really what we're hoping for so well thank you so much this has been an amazing conversation i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me yeah you bet thanks again